Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. Today, we continue our classical conversation series with my new friend, Space Age Maximalist. He's written multiple articles for Man's World magazine, and he has a substack called Jungle Bunker Telemetric Funk. Uh, I'll put up links to those and to his Twitter, where he posts beautiful space-related images and comments on the state of contemporary science, among other things. I met Sam on a space that he co-hosted with Meta Prime on building parallel systems, and so I looked into his project and immediately knew that there is a lot to learn from this guy. So Sam, how are you? Yeah, I'm fantastic. Uh, being flattered like this, it's not an everyday occurrence. I think you are massively overselling the quality of my work. Uh, but nevertheless, there is probably some niche that I'm catering to, and it seems to have struck a chord with quite a, quite a few people on uh, on the X. Right. Well, Sam, I don't like this accusation as the first thing that happens. My soul is, you know, moved and animated by love of truth. And, um, and I would not overstate the goodness. Well, I guess we'll find out. No, I'm just kidding. So, um, so I, I have been listening to some of your podcast episodes and your third episode really struck me all in a big way. Um, it's called Advanced Eschatology and Influences Remix. So there you kind of reflect on your project as a whole. And you lay out like a really clear and admirable map of the dissident right terrain today. So if anybody's sort of interested in, in that kind of thing, I think it's a great place to start or a great place to sort of review a lot of different thinkers' ideas. Um, but you note that your sort of like, you know, key landmark essay uh, for space age maximalism uh, that's in man's world is principally an emotional appeal that lays out an attractive vision of what could be and that exhorts engineers to be more base. Could you spend some time laying out that vision uh, to, to sort of yeah, lay out something beautiful before we turn to your more sober assessment of, of things? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I cannot, like any creative person, I cannot really take credit for whatever visions I've had. They all come to me in dreams. Uh, I've gotten help from my local Mayan priest. They uh, practice necromancy and so I, I, I can talk to my ancestors in this way. But nevertheless, the beautiful vision that you talk about um, is actually preceded by um, yeah, ugly visions, visions of uh, great sadness to me. And the reason I bring it up is because this is the antithesis in the dialectic that I'm proposing. Because really what we are experiencing in the world is a loss of... Uh, beauty and truth and goodness, but also of excellence and quality. And, you know, you can see this in aesthetics, uh, but also in technical terms. And once I started seeing all of this around me, I started to break out of my own, let's say, uh, technically induced autism or mm. the blinders that you put on as a technical person where you only care about whatever you're working on and you don't really see the world around you. Mm -hmm. And this, the prospect of losing the possibility of, of actually completing these projects, this greatly animated me. And yeah, and, and this was part of the reason I got red, red pill, so to speak, actually, which is I didn't want to any, I didn't want anyone to endanger, uh, the potential of us going to space. And so the vision that is the opposite of this, the positive vision is, for me, at least, I propose an international cabal of based esoteric engineers, as I like to call them. And mm -hmm. this is basically engineers understanding 
that they have power that they don't realize yet. They are kind of priest kings, I think. They are unwitting priest kings because, you know, the priests of old, they had the power because they could predict eclipses and mess with people's minds and so on. But the kings were really, they were the temporal power. And in this sense, I think scientific people, they are both. They predict the eclipses, but they also build the bomb. And because of that, they are not only uh, potentially the prime material for a new aristocracy, but also vital strategic assets for any other kind of aristocracy that's trying to be born or birthing itself. And so, yeah, I think what I realized here is how important engineers are to the greater dissident right movement. Mm -hmm. And that um, there's a problem here is that because of the natural inclinations of these people, they are objective and not really, well, I wouldn't say really moved by aesthetics, but not primarily moved by aesthetics. Mm -hmm. And the dissident right, and especially the right wing in general, it is ultimately an artistic view of the world. I would you agree with this? I think this makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I remember when I was younger, uh, telling my uncle, who's like more scientifically oriented, that when, you know, Obama had, you know, gutted a lot of the funding for NASA, <clears throat> how disappointing this was to me. Because I think it's one of the reasons I was attracted to your project is because when I was a boy, I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to go to the stars. Um and I was, yeah, really moved by the space project. And I sort of, you know, expressed my disappointment to my uncle. And he said, and I was majoring, you know, in humanities kind of stuff at the time. And he said, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to write a strongly worded letter to the president and see if that works? Humanities guy? And I was like, oh, uh, that sounds pretty lame. I don't think that's going to work. He's like, no, it won't work. You need to have power if you want to do this. Um, and you're not going to gain any power by doing that. And I was kind of shocked by what he said at the time. And then, you know, it didn't really change my life. I just, you know, still majored in humanities, which I'm grateful for. Um, but but I do I do feel this longing uh, that you do. And, and a concern, you know, even at that time before I could say that I was red-pilled, that, you know, this was being taken away and it wasn't really clear why or that something more noble was being set before us. Yeah, indeed. And, you know, uh, I think it's commendable. Every young boy has dreamed of it at some point because it is a natural expression of all of the healthy um yeah instincts that man has in terms of exploration and discovery and adventure and danger even but uh, most grow out of it um yeah, i would include myself in this too i mean i am a space engineer by profession mm -hmm. and i do still have dreams of going to space but you know as time goes on perhaps it's because i'm becoming jaded but i am more realistically assessing my own chances of going to space and you know, I'm content with being part of the process of, yeah, making more attractive destinations in space and not just going myself. Because if you go to space today, really, you're going to a tin can in the ISS, you spend six months there, maybe you get cancer, and then you come back. <laughs> and that's it. And your eyeballs don't work as well anymore. <laughs> and, you know, what we really want is permanent destinations, uh, you know, uh, golf on the moon and these things. And uh, that's really where the engineering comes in. But nevertheless, indeed, the, the strongly worded letter, I think, is uh, exactly what I treat in one of my recent articles. I talk about culture and power. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, but we, I think we're going to talk about this a little bit later. In any case, um, yeah, I think 
to what we were saying before about artistic view and aesthetics, really it's what I'm trying to do at its core is combining the aesthetic with the technological and presenting a new aesthetic view of things that is a synthesis of both the objectives of, you know, my own uh, space proclivities, but also the distant right. And I think there's a lot of overlaps there. They are really the same thing. And perhaps, you know, over this conversation, we will cover these topics, but really there are a lot of people in the dissident right because they come from, you know, more literary backgrounds. They are Luddites. They don't really understand the technological part of it or they've become allergic to it somehow. And on the opposite camp, you know, it's, it's all the stem cells who, who look down on people who only read philosophy and so on because they don't know how to do real world things, even though they have completely lost their own spiritual life. Mm -hmm. And so, it's in the synthesis of these two, it's in the meeting of these two that I think you have the prime material for a new aristocracy, a real aristocracy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned that again, because I did want to kind of go back to that. So maybe let's like move ahead as far as whatever we had outlined um, and kind of talk about how, how to make the engineers ready for this kind of aristocracy, how to make them self-aware leaders who sort of understand what their own activity is and how that activity relates to political life. Because I, I think that you're you're right to say that there's a very clear connection uh, between like the, the goals of the dissident right and the sort of like space age view or this view towards engineering excellence. I mean, because it seems like one of the biggest problems is that, you know, at least in the United States, it seems like a lot of the infrastructure is breaking down. There's not the political will to employ the engineers, you know, to fix like these various difficulties that it seems like we really ought to be able to do. Um, so I guess I could ask you this, um, especially, you know, maybe you could reflect on your own experience or thinking about engineers in general, but what prevents engineers from gaining the kind of self-awareness that would be required to see what's wrong in the present moment and to see what's possible for them to do? Um, or to put it a different way, is there anything in the typical engineer's education that makes them prone to ideological capture or or to just sort of remain neutral and just sort of autistically, you know, looking at whatever project that they have in mind. So yeah, what, what prevents them or what's holding them back uh, from being these aristocrats? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there are several factors at play here. First of all, you have to consider the population from which you are sampling these people, because mm -hmm. uh, let's be completely honest here. The average en engineer is not really, you know, the warrior type. They are mm -hmm. usually non-combative, more quiet, bookish people. Not that I think this is a good thing or that it's normal, but today this is the case. It's people who, uh, for one reason or another, they favor the, the intellectual over the physical. Now, not to say I haven't met uh, many prodigious specimens in my field. I am one myself. But mm -hmm. uh, nevertheless... It's people who are not very physical and the average IQ of this population, if you look at the field of engineering, you know, you have a spread over the different types of engineering, but the mean is around 125, 130, depending on which kind of engineering. And so, unfortunately, a lot of these people, because engineering is largely procedural, they fall into the midwit camp. Now, 
all of the malaise that we know that comes from this group, this this range of IQ, uh, it's not as bad with engineers because they are paid to be objective about the world. That's the whole point. <clears throat> you know, uh, the, the midwits studying, you know, gender studies or whatever, they probably come out a lot more destroyed from higher education. But yeah, it's, it's this combination of, um, let's say a certain personality type plus a certain IQ range plus um, the fact that through the education, and I think this gets more to the core of your question, you know, what can we do actively to change this, this education? Can we influence anything setting up new structures is, at least from my experience, um, there is really no emphasis at all on the, I wouldn't even call it spiritual, but on the humanistic side of things, because you just don't have time for it. I mean, in your first, second, third year of engineering, you're going to learn all of mathematics up to advanced calculus and then perhaps a bit more, you know, all of physics. You have to know the specific engineering content for your specialization if you're doing nuclear or aerospace or whatever. You have to do statics, dynamics, control theory, all of these different things. And you just don't have time for anything else. Mm -hmm. And that's that wasn't really the point of a university, right? It was to make well-rounded uh, free thinkers. Mm -hmm. This is more of a kind of, yeah, uh, professional education, really, like mm -hmm. a job qualification. And nothing against that. I actually think this is partially a good thing because in Europe, at least, this is probably more the case than in the United States where you have minors, you have electives, you have all these extra things you have to do. Um, but there is a bare minimum that you can, could add to the education that would at least prevent the easiest failure modes. For example, making them read Machiavelli or something like this, mm -hmm. you know, uh, giving them the essential red pill material so they at least don't get taken advantage of by people who have dominated skill sets that are different from their own. Because what I notice a lot is what prevents them from, from having the self-awareness is the fact that they aren't really exposed to these situations often enough. They don't spend the time thinking about modeling other people's states of mind. Mm -hmm. This kind of theory of mind that you need to you know, be manipulative or empathetic or um, yeah, effective in these social situations they don't really develop that because they spend so much time thinking about the physical world, which is fine. They have to specialize, mm -hmm. but it leaves them vulnerable to attack from, you know, the longhouse. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And this is really a function of resource scarcity because, you know, between time, effort and money, like any project you need, there are constraints in what you can offer in a curriculum at a institution, unless you have, you know, billions of dollars in endowment like MIT or Harvard. Uh, this is just not the case for the majority of universities around the world. And even then, the ones who have some funding, uh, the problem with teaching engineers is they need to do things hands-on because a lot of the knowledge is procedural. Mm -hmm. You could memorize all of the f formulas and the functions that won't actually make you a good problem solver because it's the process that you're trying to impart on them not specifically the facts. Mm -hmm. And this is something we can get into later because it's something I'm still wrestling with. You know, is it the knowledge? Is it the information or is it the, the process, the, the 
ja, the procedural skills. Um, but nevertheless, there's so much theory background that you need to just be able to start designing these things, being an engineer, that what it leads to is a lot of theory cells. And the theory cells, not in the way, you know, humanities people are, but they usually end up being pretty good programmers. They can model things well, but they can't even, you know, tighten a screw or something. It's it's really lopsided. And what you see a lot today is engineers, they just get get poached by the finance and consulting industries. Uh, it's It's really... It's a little bit sad to see, really. You know, you have all these people learning how to design planes and rockets and they end up working at a bank. And this also happened, like what you were saying with uh, with NASA and Apollo. Uh, after they cut Apollo to put the money in Vietnam, all of those engineers who had been working at NASA, who made, who got us to the moon, they all went to work so, for finance and hedge funds and so on. Mm-hmm. And that's really a catastrophe, I think. Yeah. That's interesting. So <clears throat> kind of gathering maybe some of what you're saying that maybe one difficulty that emerges for an engineer, and I guess maybe this problem kind of comes out of something that uh, Leo Strauss says, but he talks about, and I think he has like a high respect for, for mathematics and, and also for science. Um, but nevertheless, I think a sort of psychological difficulty that he envisions scientific types running into is I think what he calls the the charm of competence is that now, I, you know, I'm, I'm not very good at math, but when I was trying to do math, I don't know, like three or four years ago, trying to get back into learning, you know, relearning some of the basics to try to understand it, there's like a real sense of satisfaction that attends successfully, you know, working through some kind of equation or problem or something like that. And you're like, yes. And, and I wonder if like engineers could fall into the problem of thinking, okay, so like I can build this very complex mechanical system. I know all this like stuff about thermodynamics and pressure, and I can, you know, make sure that we're moving this chemical out of the earth, like at a certain rate, you know, and putting it somewhere else. And that you can do this thing that the average person is totally incapable of doing. And in some cases, completely incapable of understanding, you know, from the beginning. And so you might start to think like, wow, like I'm really smart. I'm in need of nothing that you kind of have a psychological sense of self-sufficiency and think that like, well, what do these humanities guys do? Like anybody can read these books. Like I could pick up Machiavelli if I wanted to, but I don't need to because I can build something um, that's like takes a lot of know-how, whereas like anybody can learn how to read. So I can read later if I want to, but I don't have to. So I wonder if something like the charm of competence, this one maybe psychological difficulty that an engineer would face. And then on the other side, uh, I'd been reading like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein recently and it's kind of remarkable that in the story, Victor, as he's trying to reanimate inanimate material, or sorry, not reanimate, but animate inanimate material for the first time, he's feverishly, you know, working on the project. And that's, he, he just sort of looks at it as like a technical problem, like um, not as any kind of like moral question or difficulty, like, like, should you be doing this? Now, maybe you, you could as a scientist say, yes, I should, this is awesome. But he doesn't really think about it very much. And and so when the monster sort of opens its eyes, he's terrified and he runs away. Uh, but he hadn't really thought at all about like, how am I going to educate the monster? <laughs> like, what should the monster do with his life? What's the purpose of a monster? That he just looked at animating matter as a technical question without thinking about any of the moral consequences that would flow out of doing something along those lines. So I don't know. So I wonder if like, yeah, just looking at every problem as a technical problem on one hand 
and then being charmed by your competence to solve most of the problems that you have on the other or two things that could lead to some myopia within the engineering class, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's important to remember that when I speak about engineers, that's just a word I use. I really mean all STEM people, right? Mm -hmm. um, of course, my own experience is limited as an engineer. I'm not a scientist, although I could be. Um, but indeed, I think what you said earlier about the, the charm of competence, the people I see this with the most by far are software people hmm. because they, well, first of all, they are theory cells and their marginal cost of iteration and experimentation is basically zero. Hmm. They can have an idea coded and it's done. And yeah, writing software is difficult, but it's, I think it's orders of magnitude less expensive and time consuming than making hardware. And, uh, yeah, I think a lot of the megalomaniac ideas that come out of a certain part of the word <laughs> California <laughs> comes from exactly what you described now, this charm of competence. Um, I notice it a lot less with people who make hardware. I don't know why it is. Hmm. Maybe the more salt of the earth. I I think that they have they have less this idea that their understanding of physical systems means they have this carryover to, you know, philosophy or morals or or whatever. Hmm. The software people, I think, they have this a lot more because perhaps the software is more uh, ethereal, or yeah, they don't have to. Maybe they aren't limited as much by physical reality as the rest of us are and, and this this gives them more confidence mm -hmm. what i see actually quite often on the contrary is um, imposter syndrome hmm. i meet um, actually the vast majority of people that i know in the field are wondering how they got there because they don't think they're worthy mm -hmm. and this is this is widely documented in academia in general uh, it's not new but hmm. yeah i think Actually, you know, we're going to get into this later, but I, I actually think engineers have the opposite problem of the charm of competence hmm. um, in, in the sense that, you know, to answer your second question about Frankenstein, mm -hmm. it's a fantastic story. I, I always like it. Um, I still remember when I first read the story about the rabbi and the golem, and I thought, oh, my God, this is exactly the same thing. Hmm. Uh Putting on blinders on yourself is not the same thing as not even seeing whatever the blinders would be preventing you from seeing in the first place. And I think that a lot of engineers, because they are so focused on just how cool and transcendent whatever physical phenomena they're studying, as you said, for example, the intense pleasure of really grasping mathematics, mm -hmm. uh, that's something that can well, not fully, but uh, greatly replace uh, other kinds of, yeah, I'd say aesthetic experience. And because of that, you're just so fixated on how cool it is, whatever you're working on, that you don't see what's around it. But yeah, there's, there's this and there's the, the other situation, which is you're working on something that's clearly, clearly morally dicey, like, I don't know, uh, bioweapons or actual weapons like guns and bombs and so on mm -hmm. and yeah for these people i have met enough engineers who just don't care and they only think about money and their merchants at heart i know people who have 
successfully applied one uh, cope or another to themselves. And, you know, they say, oh, yeah, it's for the good of the country. I'm a good patriot, whatever. Fine. Mm. Right. Um, and then there's the interesting third category, but this is very niche. Perhaps it was more the case earlier, which is when you're working on something really classified, everything, of course, has NDAs. And uh, I've had to sign many myself. Mm -hmm. uh, many of these have quite strict penalties. But if you're working on a really sensitive system, often you don't get the whole project. You only get one little subsystem that you work on and you don't even know what you're, what you're creating. And mm -hmm. I would say there are more people like you think in that situation. But yeah, to, you know, to bring it back to Frankenstein. Um, yeah, I think it's exactly because of a, a dearth of spiritual experience, or at least an aesthetic appreciation for, you know, that leads you to moral considerations and so on, that uh, they don't even see the problem with it. They just want to make something cool. And that's fine. But this is exactly what I'm trying to do with my project, which is to harness this this different, let's say, understanding of aesthetics and what is cool and using that for, you know, political purposes and getting engineers to understand that if they don't get active in another sense, that all of the possibility of, you know, building these cool things will be taken from them by people who are completely, you know, orthogonal to their way of life, their way of understanding the world. Right. Yeah, so maybe to say one last thing about this question is, I, I guess I hadn't thought about this before, but there's kind of like a, a striking difference between Frankenstein on one hand and the engineer that you're describing who has to sign an NDA to work on their you know secret part of the project, that they work on this like very tiny component and there's like maybe somebody higher up in the organization who actually knows how all the parts fit together into some kind of whole. And you're sort of limiting the information everybody has in part maybe so that they don't have to worry about moral questions about what they're working on, but probably more in their view, it's to yeah make it so that you can't reveal the secrets to anybody else because you don't really know ultimately the full purpose of what you're working on is for. Um, so, so that's like, so just thinking about being an engineer, signing an NDA, working as part of like a large corporation or for the government or something along those lines versus a sort of like Faustian individual who just has no NDAs, who's just like, I don't know, like what, what is possible? What are the limits? What are the scientific constraints placed on animating matter? Can I do this? And then, you know, he has to charm a couple people at the, you know, University of Ingolstadt in order to get the resources required in order to undertake his project. But it's like pretty easy for him to do it. And then he just works on it as an individual. It seems like science now, now maybe to make it advances in science today, you maybe it's not possible to do it as an individual anymore. That's not something I guess I know about, but it just strikes me as two totally different situations as like a Faustian individual scientist limited only by his, you know, perseverance and imagination on one hand versus this sort of like constrained scientist or engineer who's, I don't know, being, who's like an instrument of others in some sense. Um, I don't know if there's anything else to say about that or, wh or what you think um, about like, could you be this individual scientist breaking out on their own? Or is that not really possible under, modern circumstances? Yeah, that's a fantastic question because, um, yeah, it's really, you know, the scientist as bureaucrat versus the scientist as um, Faustian mage. And mm -hmm. I think the, all of the figures that we know and love in the history of science and engineering, 
you know, they appeared basically in the 18th and 19th century, 18th, um, yeah, 17th, no, yeah, 18th and 19th centuries, because uh, there are several different competing theories for why this is. Some people think it's because we have suffered mass dysgenics and we are simply not creating geniuses as much as we used to. Uh, our gene pool is uh, compromised because of the industrial revolution. We no longer select uh, children through childbirths. Everyone gets to survive. Mm-hmm. That's one theory. Another one is we picked all of the low-hanging fruit in science. And so all of the really groundbreaking discoveries and, you know, like inventing the light bulb and so on, all of these things are simply not possible at the scale that they were being done back then, you know, by mm-hmm. single gentlemen. Uh, discoverers mm-hmm. and uh, you know this ties into the, f- the fact that, that today the rate of discovery uh, or the rate of discovery to the amount of publications that are appearing in mm. journals and so on is just getting worse and worse and worse it's like science is slowing down and we are trying to squeeze more and more uh, but less and less is coming out and, you know, nowadays you see these papers and they have 20 authors. Now, a lot of that is politicking and uh, include me as a co-author, even though it's just a supervisor who doesn't didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. It's a big political mess. Right. But, yeah, I think that the Faustian figure is possible, but not in the domains that we are used to thinking about because our conceptions of the evil genius are still very much rooted in our yeah how we see the 19th and 18th and 20th century and mm-hmm. nowadays it's the small the small tinkerer in his uh, room i mean it's never been cheaper to have all of these tools in your garage right mm-hmm. you can have a cnc mill you can have a 3d printer you can even have a six axis robot doing all these things it's literally never been cheaper mm-hmm. however the bureaucracy itself has also grown and to contribute not, you know, if you want to be a, a discoverer and be like the resident scientist for a, a private military corporation or cartel or something, that's one thing. Fine. You can grow max. But if you want to be part of the greater community and, you know, be respected and have people take your ideas seriously, then that's very difficult and you won't make it as a Faustian man at all because the longhouse has also infected academia completely. Mm-hmm in all senses. And uh, you see this in archaeology, you see this in the social scientists, sciences, you mm-hmm. see this in physics where, yeah, or cosmology even, where it's uh, heresy to suggest anything besides the complete patchwork of a model they have working nowadays, or mm-hmm. working is a strong word. But um, yeah, in any case, I think that Faustianism is definitely something that's possible, but you must be willing to challenge your own understanding of well how it is you're going to innovate because we're really not in a time that fosters this on a social level it's technically possible but you're going to have to be a real rebel for it which is kind of the point so that's fine really right yeah yeah that just makes me think uh oh like it's been a little while since i've read this but dr jekyll and mr hyde but just that uh there's this like sort of normie doctor, Dr. Lanyon, who thinks that, you know, Dr. Jekyll is insane, you know, for doing the things that he wants to do. And so if a scientist stands athwart the establishment or bureaucratic science, either this guy's an idiot, which is probably the case in a certain sense, insofar as like talent is rare or, you know, the high, like genius is rare. 
So it's like if you stand outside the you know scientific establishment, either you're an idiot or you're like a world historical genius or something like that. Um, which, yeah, w- which would be a really difficult thing to do. But if you're going to discover anything like of note, then like that's I guess what you would have to do. Um, yeah, and I think a reason perhaps why over the last 30 years, I mean, you're probably familiar with the whole, the the comments that Peter Seale has made about how the last 30 years we've been stagnating in atoms and only advancing in bits. Our material right. lives are basically the same as they were in the 80s. Um, but I think the reason for that is, it, is its cost. And so all of the people who were kind of Faustian and prone to experimentation on their own time, they could do it within software because mm-hmm. literally all you needed was a garage and two guys. Mm-hmm. But This is also starting to not be the case. I mean, it's still the case, but look at the scale of uh, something like Google or mm-hmm. Facebook. Um, you know, it's it's starting to, the bureaucracy is starting to metastasize as well. Even though these companies are pretty well run from what I hear. I mean, they have a lot of internal processes and some people say they're being taken over and colonized by the higher Indian castes, but that's a whole mm-hmm. different story. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's 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 not easy to be Faustian nowadays. Although I do think the times are changing. Um, I you know this is something I talk about in the eschatology episode as well. Is uh, the AI doomers and some other groups as well? They have this idea that the linear progression of sort of yeah the the linear idea of history, the progress with a capital P, is just going to keep continuing, mm-hmm. and technological progress is you know, aligned with this in their conception. Right. Um, and because of that, our failure mode as a society, as a civilization is going to be, you know, some kind of AI takeover, foom, techno singularity, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually think, and, you know, as I proposed there, I, I think that our failure modes are much more low tech, that they are going to happen for way stupider and more lame reasons. Uh, much earlier than any, you know, any kind of high sophistication catastrophes that we can cause for ourselves. If only we so, be fortunate enough to be destroyed by an AI god. Yeah, exactly. Like this is something we have to earn. I think it's. Uh, <laughs> it would be a glorious way to. It's. It would be like committing civilizational seppuku. You know, <laughs> uh, it's a glorious way to die. And I think anyone who's afraid of that is uh, an absolute, um, yeah, uh, schwurtel. In German, I don't want to to activate the spice sensors on whatever AI detection program you're going to run this through. <laughs> okay, so maybe let's go back a step um, in talking about engineers or scientists more broadly um, to sort of like just talk about the the rank order of things. So you had written a Man's World article entitled "The Hierarchy of Power" uh, that came out fairly recently. I mean, you sort of offer a rank order of the sciences saying biology is the lowest, then you move up to chemistry, then physics, and then mathematics is highest. Um, I was wondering, could you explain why that rank order is what it is? And then maybe after that, maybe add a word in on like, where where does engineering lie um, within that rank order? Or is it something different insofar as it's about like the application of those things to the real world? Um, Yeah. Yeah, of course. And, you know, to contextualize a little bit, the original reason I added that in the article is because I was making the comparison with the hierarchy of power, which is culture being, let's say, at the top in the same way 
self-actualization is at the top of the Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is the most ethereal one. It is the least grounded in the base reality of the world. And of course, violence is at the, the bottom of that. And uh, by comparison, if you think about the sciences, uh, this hierarchy is simply where one is the application and the distillation of the last. And so the most fundamental one, of course, is mathematics, because you simply, you know, you start with some axioms, you make some stuff up. And if it's true, then it's true. And it's always true. And that's the beauty of mathematics, like we were saying before. You know, you can prove something mathematically and it exists forever, eternally, somewhere in, let's say, you know, platonic space. We can we can have some fun with that afterwards. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that raises the question, did we discover or invent mathematics? Ah, spicy. Yeah. Nevertheless, yes. mathematics has this place at the bottom because of this transcendental nature. Mm-hmm. And one could even say that philosophy comes before that. But yeah, uh, with Kosten Alamario's recent book, I don't know if I subscribe to that idea anymore. <laughs> um, yeah. But from there, you get to physics because physics is just the application of mathematics to the real world. And, uh, you know, it became, it began with very simple descriptions of systems and mechanics and so on. And it started getting more and more esoteric as the edge cases for the series started becoming more and more specific. You know, what if things go really fast? Then you have to be relativistic. What if they're really small and so on? And, um, you know, from there, the physics of the atom and so on, that's, you move on to chemistry. And uh, so I will say that chemistry did not initially begin as an application of physics. So maybe this is a false comparison to make, but um, it really is, you know, when you take, what you know about how atoms work and you apply them one layer higher onto all these different elements that we can find in nature, then then you get chemistry. Mm-hmm. But of course, the, the practice of chemistry itself, it's just a lot of trial and error. You know, if you've ever done chemistry, you know, you just have to remember a whole bunch of properties and charts and, you know, electron clouds and distributions and so on. And it's really a pain in the ass, but it works. Mm-hmm. It's like alchemy almost. <laughs> and... You know, once you've understood chemistry well, you can apply this to living things. And, you know, this and this is a point of contention, I suppose, because this is assuming, as the mainstream does today, that biology is a primarily chemical system, a chemical mm-hmm. and mechanical system. Mm-hmm. Uh, some other people would think that, no, it's actually an electromagnetic system or a bioelectromagnetic system. Mm-hmm. We can get into this if you want. I don't think it's really the, the scope of this conversation, but... Uh, would you say a little bit more about that? I just, I'm curious, like, what are the yeah. consequences or like, what are the presuppositions maybe of like each of those, or like, what are the consequences of not thinking that it's principally a chemical, uh, it's like the fundamental substrate or the most important thing governing it. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I suppose specifically for bioelectromagnetics, uh, there's a whole bunch of science that's been done over the years where for example people with longer hair they actually have better uh, sensing capabilities Hmm. and when you cut their hair they lose some of the accuracy that they had and the reason for this for this would be that the hair is just a little antenna and if you think about it that's why animals have whiskers right they're just feelers it's a little antenna um but that's just a silly example another one is if you apply very low voltages on your skin you know you have a little 
capacitor and you just run it through, uh, or you just have a little yeah battery that, that doses it out appropriately, then you can actually increase your healing by quite a bit. This also raises the questions of how our bodies actually interact with electromagnetic fields that we are uh, subjected to on a day-to-day -day basis. Because if you think about it, we have increased the intensities of these fields by orders of magnitude, anything that we would have encountered in nature. Mm -hmm. And people who live next to, for example, a cell tower, mm. it's really, we've only really done this experiment in the last couple of decades because it's completely novel in our biology as well. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, what we've found so far is it, it doesn't look very good. There mm -hmm. are some really severe consequences for um, messing up the internal electromagnetic balance that exists in our bodies or for that matter uh, not grounding ourselves with earth uh, i don't maybe you've read this on the internet but mm -hmm. you're supposed to regularly complete the circuit between you and the earth because our atmosphere is uh, you know it has a it has a, a voltage and uh, it's an electric field and when you don't complete the, the, the cycle with, or when you don't complete the circuit with Earth, which is literally just touching the Earth, mm -hmm. you build up the wrong charge in your body. And this mm -hmm. also causes, you know, your, your internal systems to malfunction. Mm -hmm. And so all these little things, they don't make sense if your primary assumption is that the body is a chemical system. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying it isn't also a chemical system, but It's this kind of very mechanistic, um, positivistic, materialist, reductive view that was cemented in the 19th century. You know, the, the time of Lord Kelvin. Maybe you remember this quote that he has. I think it was 1899. He said something like, yeah, everything that can be invented has been invented. And I'm sure they felt like that. They felt like they were on top of the world. They had just electrified the world and, you know, Mm -hmm. And then five, five or six years later, relativity comes out. I don't agree with Einstein, but just to say that the paradigm was completely shifted and then quantum came out and so on. Right. And uh, the point is that in some ways, we really haven't moved past that old paradigm to include electromagnetic phenomena. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, show my ignorance uh, too greatly, but, but I remember like reading this article that talked about um, Newton's diaries. And when he was like discovering gravity, he really felt like, Oh shit, like this is going to screw up everything because like our models of like physics had been building built upon uh, an assumption of contact causality that one body has to, you know, press against another to make it move. Whereas gravity would be like the idea that one body could affect another body at distance. And it'd be maybe a little bit difficult to tell causally speaking, which body is moving another body if this kind of thing is happening and that it, It just like throws like a wrench into everything. And then, so it seems like what you're saying, well, maybe, maybe you can certainly correct me if I'm wrong. Um, is that, yeah, that like if we're like in some sense using this older vision of causality, whereas it's not quite as straightforward as we thought that it was that maybe, yeah, that, that this like, uh, I don't know, difficulty in causality is not being applied to all the sciences equally or some sort of difficulty in causation It's like, it's not as if like maybe a biologist hadn't read some article talking about like the difficulty of causality or something along those lines, but they're like, well, but whatever, this like model works most of the time for most of the things that we need. 
but then these like unintended consequences emerge from these like newer technologies or systems. And then weird stuff happens to you. Like if you're living next to a cell tower, as you're, you're suggesting. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I suppose the modern equivalent with this uh, would be um, quantum entanglement. You know, this is a, a, a similarly crazy idea nowadays to back then suggesting that you could have everything affecting everything else from an infinitely long distance. <laughs> It's uh, quite, actually, I'd, I'd never thought about that, but yeah, gravity would have been quite, quite crazy if you, at the time. But yeah, I think this is partially due to siloing inside of the sciences and mm -hmm. over-specialization and, you know, people don't talk to enough, uh, to each other enough. Uh, certainly the, The bioelectromagnetic researchers don't talk to the rest enough. But um, yeah, I think that, you know, part of technical education going forward, if we're, you know, trying to build this new aristocracy of, of uh, engineer, warrior, priests, um, is really to make it broad for as long as possible, or at least to make the connection between these things really clear. Because I know so many engineers who literally design parts for rockets that don't know anything about chemistry. And the worst part is they're fine because they don't have to. They're mm -hmm. over-specialized for it. Mm -hmm. And in principle, that's not a problem. You need this larger group of engineers who are just more technicians. But if you're moving into the higher caste, you really have to have this holistic understanding of reality. Mm -hmm. And that includes not only all this technical phenomena but also you know the, the uh, let's say aesthetic ones literary ones spiritual ones whatever it is they're all part of they're all part of reality the same way mathematics is part of reality you know it, it exists apart from us whether we like it or not the same way moby dick does but um yeah <laughs> Yeah, that's something I'm, I'm not prepared to talk about this like right now. So maybe, you know, we can talk about it offline or at some other point, but just uh, there's like in Plato's Phaedo, when Socrates kind of talks about his autobiography a little bit, he talks about this problem that perplexed him as to how one becomes two or like how mm -hmm. you add something to something else or divide it like one into two. And uh, again, like I, have to, I would have to prepare more to speak about this with enough clarity, but It seemed like part of what Socrates was worried about was that math might be to some extent mind dependent or that the mind gives form to some extent to one and two insofar as like to say that you have like, I don't know, there's like a bunch of chairs in a room um, to sort of say like, okay, well, there's like 27 chairs in this room. You've kind of made some sort of like arbitrary limiting principle of like that, which is perceptible to you that you sort of say, like, well, my mind has sort of determined that like this is the space in which we'll like look for number. And now I'm going to like number all these things. We'll take away one. Mm -hmm. But the, but the fact that you're thinking about this at all, it's just, it's sort of like in your mind, which isn't, I, I don't mean to propose that Socrates is like uh, making an argument for some kind of like radical subjectivity within math. I don't think that's at all what he has in mind. But I think he, he's just like wondering to some extent, is math mind dependent or does it exist completely externally to the mind? Again, I, I don't, I'd have to spend more time preparing to like talk about this uh with clarity so i don't know if you have anything to say about that or if it makes sense to keep moving but but I'll no hold. that's it's i mean if we could talk all night about this i'm as ignorant as anyone else uh because this is a really good question a fundamental one 
And I think the, at least the practical conclusion I've come to that settles things in my mind is you can consider mathematics theoretically as much as you want, mm -hmm. but it's really in the interface with our world that most of the attention has to go to. Because I'm an engineer at heart, I've seen people, friends of mine, they go completely down the mathematics rabbit hole. Some of them even studied mathematics. And God, it's a completely new level of theory cell. Some <laughs> of them really get lost in it. Uh, I don't recommend that. It's really schizophrenic. <laughs> Which is, you know, fine, I suppose, if you want to spend your entire life in that. But for me, as until it has some kind of practical application if there's no mapping to the real world even in a very abstract sense like the way we use imaginary numbers in order to model uh you know waves when they travel electromagnetically or elsewise you know that's fine mm -hmm. but uh you know like for example the set the set theory people mm -hmm. or like category theory my god it's uh yeah anyway Uh, I think maybe this is a good moment to take a, a, a short break. Okay, so we are back. Um, okay, so one of the things, uh, Sam, that you had said before the break was that uh, there are, well, in some sense, you talked about cell towers, you know, having these electromagnetic effects on us, and that might make a case for us thinking of our biology, not simply at a sort of chemical systems level, but also at some kind of like electromagnetic level. And so we might think of like cell towers is just an unqualified good. Isn't it good that we can talk to each other, uh, you know, from farther away that my voice can magically go into this box, uh, shoot up into the sky and then land in your bunker, like in Guatemala. Like this is like very cool. Um, and it seems like it's an unqualified good, but there are these then unintended consequences like of the cell tower potentially, um, or something like that. And so I guess I wonder if we could talk a little bit about technology and, the different ways that humanities oriented types look at it versus the way that a more scientific type would look at technology's goodness. So, I mean, I wonder if we could start with some of the limits that you yourself had pointed out um, in your eschatology episode, and then maybe we could work through some other examples that we had talked about. Um, so, so I guess I, you're a space age maximalist, but you're not just like a technological cheerleader. Like you, you seem sensitive to the trade-offs um, with various technologies. And so um, one of the things that you point out, and I think we talked about this a little bit earlier too, is that technology often has dysgenic effects. Um, the weak prosper under its dispensation. Um, and furthermore, the warrior, uh, one of the highest human possibilities has a difficult, if almost impossible time flourishing. Uh, you know, an obese guy with Doritos dust on his hand could use a drone against the strongest, most handsome warrior um, and kill them. And that seems disgusting and grotesque. So if increases in technology can soften man um, or prevent warriors from showing forth their excellence or lead us to depend on complex systems that's 
that are hard to maintain the competence to maintain. Um, what hope can we place in technology to get us out of a situation that at least in to some extent, or maybe is largely responsible for creating the situation we're in? Like how, how can tech get us out of these technologically induced problems? Or is there a better way to think about it? Yeah, the pertinent questions. I would like to begin by uh, refuting this some assertion you made about the good of the internet. I think that, um, okay, perhaps it's not the internet, but the invention of cell phones have actually made the world uh, significantly worse, not for all of the normal reasons you think about, oh, it's making the teenagers depressed. I don't care. <laughs> It has put billions of idiots in contact with each other all <laughs> over the world. And this is really, yeah, apocalyptic. But uh, nevertheless, indeed, I am a maximalist of the space age, but uh, that doesn't mean that my idea of what a space age is uh, includes all of the technologies that we have today in the current form. You know, I, I am a firm believer in the Jetsons. I think this is fantastic. <laughs> but... Um, You know, if it's interesting actually to do, uh, practice a little bit of retrofuturism. I'm in a fantastic group chat on, on uh, the X called Retrofuturism. It's mostly for aesthetics, but sometimes we have conversations about this. I think these retrofuturistic conceptions of futurism, mm -hmm. they're popular today because back then we were still optimistic about the future. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, You know, it's kind of comical to us now that they thought uh, these computers are still going to be the size of a mainframe, but our cars are going to fly. <laughs> And it was exactly the opposite. But um, on the question of how to use technology to get us out of the problems that, that technology has created, I think, huh, let's say technology is a, This is a, a thesis of mine that technology is a an extension of the human body, mm -hmm. and uh, this can be for better or for worse. It's a it's basically a, an abstraction away from our work that we had to do manually before. We were saying before you you talked to me about Plato's Phaedrus, mm -hmm. and we were talking about you know how um, writing would hurt memory. You know, this is what they were complaining about back in ancient Greece. Ah, the young, they used to memorize all these poems by heart and now they can't do it anymore because they can write it all down. Mm -hmm. We've heard this iteration of this argument thousands of times. It mm -hmm. happens every time something new is invented. Oh, these people, they will grow up irresponsible because now they have plows instead of having to do it themselves. <laughs> um, now, if you think about it, every one of those is an abstract, is something that humans had to do themselves and it's abstracted away and it's placed into the world and we can multiply our capabilities with it. Mm -hmm. But I think recently the parts of ourselves that we have been abstracting away are a little bit more central to our humanness, our minds, our souls. Uh, this is I think why AI is such an emotional subject with people because it's a lot more existential than just, than just you know, abstracting away manual labor. But mm -hmm. the kinds of problems that technology has created nowadays, uh, you, you bring up the Dorito dust example. Yeah, indeed. But what we've noticed in war, in the last two recent wars at least, is actually, even though we have all of these 
pieces of technology, it's still very physical. Mm-hmm. You still have to go to a trench. Mm-hmm. You still have to, you know, if you're really motivated like Hamas was, you can really cross the best protected border on the planet in a kind of like a Donkey Kong racing getup <laughs> with a, a paraglider and a, a little cart with a fan on the back. As, from an aerospace view, it's, this is fantastic. But, you know, what they did there, it's it's really sad to see. And yet they managed to do this in a very low-tech way mm-hmm. because they decided to do it. And this is where I actually think that the will and the body play much greater roles in what we are experiencing today than the tech bros will give them credit for. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I bring this example of the warrior and how he is being replaced and supplanted by technology. Uh, but I actually, I'm a little bit more ambivalent on this question hmm. because, you know, like we were saying before, it would be an honor to commit civilizational seppuku by creating AI and having it take over. Uh, the same way, I don't think that that will be the failure mode. I also don't think that over-technologizing war will be you know, how war ends. I think we're actually going to become more low-tech, if anything. Hmm. You could say this is because of uh, political balkanization of the global American empire, um, perhaps the loss of mutually assured destruction through nuclear weapons, um, you know, the kind of post-Roman low-level violence that existed in medieval Europe. I think this is what we will see globally. And that means low-level tech as well, mm-hmm. or at least at the level of a Kalashnikov, which is extremely hardy and robust technology. It is one of the best designs you have ever seen. It works after decades of communist misuse of it. I think, you know, I don't bring up the AK-47 for no reason. Mm-hmm. I think there are two things that you can move in the direction of, which is optimality and robustness or anti-fragility, you know, Nassim Taleb enjoys be <laughs> creaming the pants right now. But uh, we have been optimizing for optimality too much. We live in, a, in an industrial society where logistical chains are just in time and everything has to run just in time and the, the, the margin for failure is very low. Mm-hmm. And this is not very robust for a variety of reasons. Our financial system is not robust at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that what's going to make it through the future is actually whatever manages to find that perfect um, trade-off between optimality and robustness. Maybe it is not as advanced, but it lasts much longer. The same way, by the way, mm-hmm. fridges from the 1950s built like bunkers, basically, out mm-hmm. of hard steel and so on. They still work today. Right. And all of this crap you get from, you know, what is the brand? Uh, does Toyota make fridges? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know. I make my own, so I, I I don't know who sells them. Wow. But nevertheless, the fridges you can get nowadays, they don't last you five years and they break. Obviously, this is planned obsolescence, but my point stands that if you put too much optimality into things, you lose robustness. Mm-hmm. And... You know, we can get further into this because it's kind of the direction I'm moving in ideologically or at least theoretically as well, which is away from pure accelerationism and building in these 
ja, es ist extra, es ist extra uh, ideal to optimize for. You know, when you, when you have an engineering project, what you get is really a list of requ requirements. Your system has to go to the moon, it has to do it in this state, it has to do it, you know, in these temperature ranges, etc., etc., etc. And here we have our requ requirements for civilization, and I'm just adding one more to the kind of technology that, that we're building, which is it has to be robust. Mm -hmm. It has to be um, resilient to more failure modes. Mm -hmm. uh, having a car which is constantly connected to the internet is not a very good idea. If your enemy has, you know, EMPs or a solar flare could happen, it's just not robust at all. Or perhaps even you're driving somewhere where you don't have 4G or, or mm -hmm. cell, cell cover or, you know, Starlink or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, people who, who believe in the linear progress of history and therefore also the linear progress of technology, mm -hmm. they think that we're going to technologize ourselves more and more. But I don't think this will happen. Mm -hmm. And when you ask the question, how can we use technology to get out of this? That kind of is assuming that it's, a, it's going to get worse and worse because of technology and we have to somehow fight fire with fire. But I think we're actually going to need technology to get out of the non-technological problems that we're going to be facing. And it's mm -hmm. actually going to be a great benefit. Uh, this is not to say we're not creating problems of our own, of course. You know, we have, well, there's a, a litany of medical discussions that can be had in this, uh, in this frame. But right. Uh, perhaps a, a more aesthetic way of understanding this um, dichotomy that I'm proposing is actually uh, goes back to Ernst Jünger. And uh, I don't know if your listeners know Ernst Jünger. Should I introduce him or? Oh, I had something on like Storm of Steel, but you could, yeah, why not say something about him? Yeah, sure. Well, Ernst Jünger is basically, He was a soldier and a thinker. He fought in the First World War. Storm of Steel is his diary, from, the, or at least a retrospective on the war. And he is largely seen as a, 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 an icon, as a warrior. He thought about this, but he also thought about the role of technology because the First World War was really the first time you had such a, a huge paradigmatic shift from one conflict to the next when it came to how technology was applied in in combat you know soldiers had never faced mustard gas before or trenches like that mm -hmm. and so he has this distinction which he makes between a solar and a lunar use of technology and the same way you can allow yourself to be softened by technology literally if you're inside all day and getting softer in the middle right is this is a lunar use of it this is uh, dominant and widespread it uh, they depend on the technology for the comfort convenience and security it's merely a means to satisfy their material and social needs and they don't really question its effects on you know culture environment spirituality whatever it is uh, this is because the masses are passive and conformist Uh, and because of this, they, they lack a higher sense of purpose and values. And so it's not really surprising they use technology in this way. It's mm -hmm. just a function of who they are as people. And maybe you see where I'm going with this. Mm -hmm. 
the technology is the same. It's just the kind of person who's using it is different. And so the solar use of technology is, you know, the aristocratic way of doing it, basically. They use it as a tool to express their will and their spirit. Mm-hmm. And it's a challenge for them and an opportunity to demonstrate creativity and courage and mastery and, uh, sorry, courage and mastery. And, you know, because of this very involved relationship with it, they are very aware of the dangers and the limitations. And they try to bring in their, you know, the spiritual aspects, the transcendence aspects that they consider into the use of the technology. And so they are independent and active. They try to use the technology with some kind of dignity. Mm-hmm. And when it becomes consuming over them, they try to resist this. Uh, and ultimately, it's serving the purpose of creating higher forms of life. Uh, Bab talks about this, you know. So Luna is mere life or yeast life. Mm-hmm. And the solar is, you know, higher life. And it really boils down to the fundamental distinction between the left and the right wing, if you think about it. Because mm-hmm. the left wing is about equality and the right wing is about quality. Mm-hmm. And it maps on perfectly to this. And this is why this goes back to the foundation of what I'm proposing in the first place, is that the right wing take back technology, not implicitly, because yeah, I'd say most engineers are like somewhat conservative because of their objectivity, but explicitly that we use technology for the explicit purpose of creating higher life. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is on earth, but also in space. And this is, I think my view for the space age, it is the flourishing, the flourishing of higher life in the entire universe, not the proliferation of life for its own purposes. You know what I mean? This is the difference. It's like, uh, recently I had a funny discussion in a group chat Somebody said, yeah, if the, the Han Chinese were to uh, dominate the galaxy, they would just be, you know, uh, proliferating like yeast all over and building the kind of communist blocks on the moon and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's true because they're kind of like this hive people. Uh, this is the lunar use of technology. You see mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Right. So, <clears throat> so, so you're sort of it seems to me talking about technology more or less as an instrument and it depends upon the kind of man who uses it uh, yeah. to sort of like use this framework, like a solar human being will use it mm, to sort of extend themselves or to seek, you know, excellent purposes or something like that. Whereas like uh, a lunar set of human beings will just try to make sure that everybody has like enough food to eat. Um, and like satisfy the belly, but it's not really about extension. It's just about mere preservation of like the many or something along those lines. Um, Mm -hmm. right. So, and then, and then, so it seemed like the, the lunar people in this framework more or less like got control of things, but I guess like, yeah, it seems like the problem, well, there's a lot to say, but uh, is it that just... I don't know. There's, there's a lot to say about this. I, I mean, I suppose it's like, it does seem as if technology gives a leg up to those who are less naturally excellent. I still grant the point from the warrior you know, situation from earlier that there are still low tech ways in which a warrior could find their full expression of their highest possibility in under certain circumstances. 
Um, and, and it seems like you're also pointing out that there are certain moments at which there's kind of like uh, an optimal point at which technology is sufficiently robust and to make it more readily available to everybody is actually kind of like a bad thing um, that maybe not everybody should have a refrigerator. Maybe just some people should have unbelievably good ones that could survive like a fire and still like work, you know, 40 years later. Um, as I know somebody who has one of those, there's like, you know, uh, <laughs> like burn marks on it, but it's, it still works, which is kind of unbelievable. Like that, that seems to be like the kind of things that we ought to be building. Um, yeah, if there's one red pill to take away from all of this is not everyone should have a refrigerator. I think that's, <laughs> that's a fantastic line. Yes, this is true environmentalism. Um. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you know, uh, what you didn't realize is I was actually setting a masterful trap because I knew you would say this. It leads perfectly into the next point, which is that... Yeah, basically, indeed, uh, technology does change us as well, and it lowers the barrier of entry to competition and to mastery. It removes the requirement for mastery. Mm -hmm. To make music nowadays, you don't really, you don't even have to know music theory. You can just, you know, make some beats, man, <laughs> and mumble some stuff about the ghetto, and suddenly you're on YouTube and famous. Mm -hmm. Uh And same thing with the warrior. Nowadays, you could just be in some base somewhere piloting a drone from thousands of kilometers away and hitting, you know, the poor goat farmers or whatever your target of the day is. And this is, yeah, the question here is, does the technology create the conditions for the people to become worse or does it just allow the worse people to start competing as well? Mm -hmm. And that's an important distinction because when you talk about dysgenics, I think that some part of, uh, of course, a large part of it is genetic, but there's also the epigenetic and it's what you do with the potentials that lies in within you. And if you realize it or not, it makes a big difference in what gets propagated. Yeah. And so, mm, Sorry, you. Were, I thought you were interrupting. Finish your thought, and then I'll and then I'll say something. Yeah, yeah. So basically, I think um, you know what we said before about technology as an extension of the human body is important here because uh, I think that the synthesis for this problem is at least when you're talking about the aristocratic view of things. I'm not really interested in the common man at all. I'm only interested in the elite and. The solution for this, perhaps I'm being a bit biased, but I think that the warrior should start to at least partially also be an engineer mm -hmm. because it is only when you are part of the creation of the technology that you fully comprehend it and it becomes part of you yeah, spiritually as well. And also it keeps the barrier of entry high, you know? And mm -hmm. so, you know, if you think about it, Yes, you, you don't have to be as fit or as skillful to be a warrior behind a screen. But quite a lot of tech, you know, it, it does make it a lot better if you know how to operate these things. Mm -hmm. They probably have a larger retainer of engineers just following the soldiers around everywhere because, you know, one of these missiles costs like 100,000 or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I think that a, a kind of fusion of the warrior and the engineer is actually a way out of this problem. Mm -hmm. Because... 
yeah, you 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 become the blacksmiths and also the swordsmen. What do you think about this? That's, it's interesting. So, and in, in it sort of moves away from hyper specialization, um, and even that sort of like suggests like a more holistic understanding would be required, and that would be something possible for higher types. Um, maybe I'll I'll offer like a small rejoinder from Nathaniel Hawthorne in a way that I think shows that I don't know technology can maybe even affect the highest types in ways that are unintended or unexpected. Um, or that technology sometimes, I mean, maybe like, I know it's like popular to talk about like Heidegger's like notion of technologies in framing the human mind to, to put it much too simply to just see the whole world as a gas station that before like the moon was seen as like a, you know, a goddess and then maybe an object of like geometric contemplation. And then it turns into like, Oh, well, you know, there's actually this like specific isotope of helium, uh, like H3 that's available more or less just there. And it would be really good for a lot of our projects down here. And so now we need to extract resources from the moon. Um, and that's that's like a very interesting line of thought. But I guess maybe something that might even be more interesting as far as technology being something that like inframes our mind, or at least potentially does if we're not sensitive to how it does so, is, is if or when it changes our habits. Because like if our habits are part of like what make us into who we are, like there, there is nature and that's like the most important thing, but nevertheless, education is still that which would allow a good nature to like reach its fullest growth or extent or something like that. And so like in Nathaniel Hawthorne's story, Fire Worship, I won't like really rehearse the whole story other than just to say that it's like a, the narrator enters into this house that used to be owned by a pastor. And he in the past had a, you know, had an open hearth fire. And then the pastor sort of like introduced one stove into the house um, because it, you know, burns the wood much more efficiently, heats the house much better. Um, I, I don't know if it uses a 10th of the wood or even like, you know, less than that, but it, it seems like it's just simply an improvement on the heating and reducing labor, which should free a human being up to have the leisure required to do higher human pursuits as opposed to this, you know, merely or this like lowly work of like chopping wood and bringing it back and things like that. So it seems like it's just good um, but Hawthorne sort of suggests that an open hearth fire, at least, especially if you're thinking about a family or I don't know, some sort of like building, I don't know, maybe like a restaurant or whatever. I don't know, but like that an open hearth fire draws people together, like out of the isolated parts of the house. Um, and, and so it habituates them to being together and to having conversations. And, you know, if you've ever, I'm sure you've gone camping or, you know, been around a bonfire and, you, you get comfortable also being silent. There's some way in which like there's no awkwardness when there's a fire, when the conversation dies down, you sort of all look towards the flame and see it's, you know, sort of infinite variations of motion. And you're sort of like hypnotically drawn towards it. And it's a kind of reminder of a more primordial way of life. Um, and that like, and maybe also like a reminder that part of what fire and technology does is that it domesticates human beings. Now, maybe it also enables higher possibilities insofar as like, fire itself might be part of what, you know, creates, you know, thinking of like primitive man, like the first parts of like sociality, like, whoa, that guy's got a fire. Like, I want to go check that out. That's interesting. Um, and, but, but it domesticates us insofar as like now we're not producing our own internal heat. We're relying on an external source for heat that that's like already like a shift in our habits. And maybe that's like ultimately just a good shift, but you are now dependent upon this thing that sits outside of you. Um, and, 
just to say one more thing about more specifically with respect to Hawthorne is that he might be somewhat comic as he notes some of these things at the end of the story, but um, he sort of says that uh, there's like a, a sort of saying of like, I'll fight for hearth and altar, but no one's going to fight for stove and altar. There's just something lame about, you know, fighting on behalf of a stove as opposed to some sort of primordial symbol or something like that. And Hawthorne doesn't spell it all the way out, but he seems to think that not only will our patriotism or desire to fight for our own start to fade or diminish over time with the advent of the stove, I think, I think somehow he sees it as like a symbol for like other technological advances to come. But that he also says, without spelling it out, that religious belief will also start to fade, that maybe once we find our relief and comfort and protection in technology as opposed to like relying upon God or thinking more about him because of our vulnerability, that tech will make us less vulnerable and therefore less needy for some sort of divine help or something like that. So he thinks that we won't want to love our own and fight for it. We won't believe in God and these high human possibilities will suffer because of this disruptive technological shift um, of like adding stoves. But then that nevertheless, at the end of the story, he's like, yeah, I added like five more stoves. <laughs> so he's like, this is so bad, but I, I did it anyway. And and then, so it starts to raise the question of like whether or not technological advances add a kind of comfort to human life that is so compelling that you might wonder if it's bad, but once you experience it and it becomes part of your habits, you couldn't imagine doing having life without it. Um, and then that leads to like a kind of like softening effect. I don't know. Sorry. I, I sort of like spilled out a, a, a tidal wave, um, which I don't usually like to do if I'm interviewing somebody, but it, it seems like the nature of the conversation was more conversational, whatever. So I don't know if you have anything to say to any of those elements, um, but don't feel like you have to speak to all of them. No, no, it's uh, I, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I think so in the end, it's quite funny because he builds all of this stuff up and then it's like, ah, yeah, I just put in five anyway. It, perhaps it's uh, the supremacy of Maslow's pyramid of needs. You know, if it, if something affects you on the level of uh, physical comfort and sensations and safety and so on, uh, screw whatever comes on the self-actualization level, you're going to go for the comfort first. Mm -hmm. But um, to this, I think... Yeah, you know, fighting in the name of induction plates is not really very <laughs> inspiring. Uh, and, and cell phones, of course. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you know, I think an author that really explores what you're talking about now fantastically is zero HP Lovecraft mm -hmm. because his, his work really delves into the ultimate expression of how the human experience and our relationship to the divine is changed by technology because you know, he writes more about the mental aspect of it, you know, mental implants, uh, augmented reality, AI directly in your brain and so on. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't get any more central to it than that. But, you know, it's it's uh, perhaps foolish to think that y you can be so aristocratic and elite that you resist all of this. It's not true. We are all Twitter addicts. <laughs> Otherwise, we wouldn't have met. Right. Right. And I do think that anyone can succumb to it. Uh, this is exactly why I am kind of turning away from the whole uh, tech bro, accelerationist, e-ac type people, because I do think that and I'm not the only one, of course. I've heard other people bring these perspectives, um, but that the answer lies in the body and in 
it's a human. And mm -hmm. whatever element of strength to resist the weakening effects of technology, that will all rely on the body. This is why you constantly hear advice to just lift bro, because mm -hmm. that reconnects you with the body. And I think you talk about this in your last episode with Wheelwright. Uh, uh, so I don't want to repeat what you guys talked about, but nevertheless, this is, yeah, how to, how to combat this, right? It's, it's an eternal question. Uh, mm -hmm. I think really it comes from a, a combination of a physical and a spiritual Uh, understanding of it and this is why you know we can talk about an education of engineering as much as you want but if you don't supplement it with the correct um, spiritual understanding the spiritual instruction then it's worthless because then you get uh, you know engineers who have no understanding of morality who don't think about the, the outcomes of their projects who only see uh, numbers and utilitarianism and so on and that, that's just it The Hearthstone, Hearthstone story illustrates this perfectly, right? He has this whole deliberation and still he adds five stores to his own house. And for us, we have uh, cancer proliferating like a cancer in our right. society. And yet we put up these cell towers everywhere. Um, I can already foresee the, the commentaries that you're going to get that I'm some kind of conspiracy theorist by saying this, or I'm completely scientifically illiterate for proposing that living next to a cell tower, you know, might cause cancer, but uh, I'm ready, you know, redirect them to me. If, if you get comments <laughs> like that. We'll do. Yeah. Um, yeah. So maybe, maybe we should turn to the education question. because I think something you're we talking about during the break was about engineers and seeing the world from the standpoint of utility and that being kind of a difficulty and that if you wanted to educate aristocratic engineers, you'd have to break them of this. And I think that maybe like a lot of young people view the world from the standpoint of utility, not simply or only from the standpoint of utility. They have like other competing motives and concerns, but nevertheless, when you sort of try to introduce something to them about learning for its own sake, You know, that like somehow just understanding the human soul and how the passions and the minds like interact with one another and like, you know, the presuppositions of like various emotions or passions and like what they like, there's like, a, you know, a certain sense in which you could say anger, you know, has its own presupposition, uh, like some, well, we don't need to go into that, but the, I guess like what I, there, there's a way in which students seem to have like a hard time entertaining the possibility that just searching for the truth by itself is like a unquestionably good activity. It's like, well, what's it for? Like, why would you do that? Um, and so, mm -hmm. I don't know, it seems like the utilitarian frame of mind is something that's affected a lot of human beings that it kind of really has a, a, a tight, like its tentacles are in a lot of brains. Um, I don't know. Did, did you have any thoughts on how, to make it so that the framework or frame of reference of utility is something that engineers can release themselves from to start to think about things in a more aesthetic way or more holistic way or with a, a more comprehensive vision. Yeah. I, you know, I have, I have experienced this firsthand. I attended actually a seminar on ethics for engineers and <laughs> it was so funny to see, Them, they, it was really, really, really simple. 
they they boiled it down to there's three kinds of ethics. There's utilitarianism, there's deontologicalism, and then there's virtue ethics. And they didn't even talk about virtue ethics. <laughs> they only they only talked about deontological and and getting the engineers to under to even understand the deontological uh, possibility was just so difficult. Mm-hmm. They and you know, you would get, it would seem like you would get far into the conversation and then we say, yeah, but that doesn't make any sense. Uh, why would you do that? That's not practical. Mm-hmm. Um, or having like a, a moral discussion and then people bring out like, yeah, but you know, what can you get away with? Is that legal? etc. <laughs> so mm-hmm. yeah, it's definitely, you know, what we said at the beginning, it's the kind of uh, inclinations that people have. And it makes me a little bit sad to hear that you're saying that it's not just in technical fields that that this is the case. Um, uh, apparently, it's also infected the humanities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we say infected tentacles and this kind of thing. I think utilitarianism has its place. Uh, mm-hmm. It does work to some degree. But boiling everything down to that is, yeah, catastrophic. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's basically the morality of materialism and atheism. Right. Right. So, and even though it's kind of contradictory because, you know, you have to assume quantities and utility and all of these things. And this would kind of assume some kind of external arbitra or, you know, a cosmic scale on, on which to measure things. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, I don't really know how they square these things, probably like the effect of accelerationists. Maybe they are also taking uh, amphetamines and, uh, you know, having great polycule orgies in the Bahamas. <laughs> Who knows? Like uh, SPF was. But nevertheless, how to make engineers less utilitarian or at least to speak to the other side? I think, at least this is how I'm trying to approach it myself, mm-hmm. is to take that core of aesthetic understanding that does exist in them. You know, mm-hmm. the things that makes them go, oh, the space, space is cool in the first place. Mm-hmm. And then start from there and try to build up a larger and larger, um, yeah, core of, um, you know, from aesthetics, you go out to morals and you, you try to build it out from there. And at some point, hopefully you will have, you know, not just, um, based engineers, but also esoteric engineers. <laughs> Right. And it seems like you could also push on them from a moral vantage point of like, okay, well, why do you want to do these useful things? Do you want to just do useful things for yourself? And it seems like they'd probably want to say, no, 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 I, I guess I do what kind of want to help other people. Okay, well, how if that's what you want to do, what's the best way to do that? Um, and then you start to see that there's there might not be a common good between all sort of like types of human beings. Like, um mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so that like there are some engineering things that you could do that would help the lunar people and some that would help the solar people. And like, what are, what are you supposed to do? Like, what kind of person are you? Um, I don't know. There's a lot to say about that, but I, but I think it helps us like segue into maybe the sort of like last question to think about, um, or at least, you know, guiding question to think about is something like, um, yeah, so you, like in your third episode, you talked about getting into space not really a technical problem. That's ultimately something that if we had the political will that we could solve, if the United States wasn't, um, you know, fighting forever wars, or if it wasn't nannying other countries, like we could easily be on Mars. Um, if we had made this our focus for the last 20 or 30 years, 
uh, this is like possible for us. Um, but we seem to be, at least I'll just speak to the United States alone, um, a people who's lost their self-confidence um, in a big way. And that, you know, the U.S. is more or less, it feels like somehow we're exhausted and just, I don't know, well, I'll leave it at that and just say, I guess like what are what are some of the first practical steps with the lowest hanging fruit or something like that that could be taken that might help lead us into some kind of Faustian vision of the future to lead us towards space age maximalism or uh, towards other things along those lines. Like what, what needs to be done? What can mm-hmm. be done? Yeah. Well, you know, to extend the consideration a little bit to Europe, uh, you know, if Europe hadn't spent the last 50 years uh, becoming communist and lazy and fake and gay, uh bickering between all these different countries we could have also been uh, on mars from isa nevertheless both of these places suffer from the same ailment in different forms and i think this is fundamentally where i differ from a lot of the let's say accelerationist people or yeah progressives generally speaking because of their linear understanding of history I think anyone who's read Spengler before, Oswald Spengler, he wrote Decline of the West. Anyone who's read that before will understand that history is cyclical and civilizations are like organisms and they have life cycles. Mm-hmm. And we are at the end of the life of what we lived in and inherited from. Mm-hmm. And you just have to accept that. Now, uh, you know, one could say rage, rage away into the dying of the night. Don't mm-hmm. just give up, etc. I don't think it's a matter of giving up. It's just about finding the right wave to surf and not fighting against things where you're just going to spend all of your energy and not really make any gains. And so for me, it's a matter of preserving what needs to be preserved, especially, you know, logistical capabilities, manufacturing capabilities, culture, uh, you know, all of these, all of these capacities, they should be preserved and, um, yeah, the torch should be uh, born from one time to the next, from one civilization to the next, mm-hmm. through these turbulent times that we're going to live in. Whether it's a high-tech failure mode, you know, Sipoku from AI, or, you know, uh, <laughs> bio-Leninism takes over the entire world or something like that. Mm-hmm. Both of them are the end of whatever cycle we were living in before. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if the United States is going to survive as an entity or at least what we know today into the future. I've mm-hmm. heard, you know, perspectives from both sides. They're going to balkanize. No, they're mm-hmm. actually, they've got their things in order. They just need new leadership and so on. In any case, the cast, the kind of people that are leading the United States today are definitely not going to make it into the future, even if it's the same government, because mm-hmm. they are completely inept They are just running off the fumes of, you know, this great empire that they inherited and they cannot manage it at all. They've run it into the ground. So I think it's this combination of active and passive uh, measures actively. Yes, we should be asserting ourselves and building power. And like I wrote in the article on man's world, the hierarchy of power, we should be becoming rich and Mm -hmm. well-connected and powerful and, uncancelable generally speaking mm-hmm. we should uh, build real life skills and know how to actually make things because 
as uh, Meta, he Meta Prime has a podcast with uh, Stormy Waters recently. They talk about how many boomers there are, which are actually making things like f fixing fridges or whatever, and they just don't have anyone to pass the business on to because no one's interested in that. Everyone wants laptop jobs, mm -hmm. and just literally just inheriting the entire physical infrastructure already gives you so much power over everyone else because they depend on you to make real things. Right. And so I think, yeah, from a, from a, a question of what can we do to be able to go into space, um, whatever is happening politically, we just have to survive that. And I think afterwards things are going to be fine. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's, there's, um, especially if I'm speaking to engineers, it's mostly like, you know, become aware of what's happening Make sure that you're as much insulated from the the blowback as possible, and you know get your stuff in order and and carry the the skills and the money and the infrastructure on to the next phase. Uh, in terms of more active prescriptions, mm -hmm. I think maybe this would be left best not said on your podcast. <laughs> I, I want you to continue having a publication. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, okay. So then maybe that, that would lead into like, um, I, that I had met you. I mean, I'd seen your posts and, you know, thought they were, you know, uh, well, they were powerful. They're, they're good. A lot of good images of the future that sort of makes you think like, yeah, I would rather live in a, oh, now I'm going to forget his first name. It's Werner von Braun, right? I, I want to mm -hmm, live like mm -hmm. a Werner von Braun future where you're building spaceships as opposed to living in a favela. Like that, that sounds like if those are the two options, if those are the two, you know, presuppositions like that you could have about where your society is heading, you could have others obviously, but, um, but it's sort of like a striking way to think about what's possible. But, um, but I'd met you on meta primes space on parallelism. So as far as like engineers education is concerned, do you think that it can be properly maintained within either the European or U.S. university system as it is? Or does it make more sense for there to be schools founded sort of like outside the mainstream or something like that, like some sort of like parallel institution um, outside of that? Like, would that be a better place to educate aristocratic engineers? Or is it possible to somehow do this within the existing educational institutions? This is a very good question because... I would say, and I can't speak for the United States too much right now because I don't know it as well. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and of course, Guatemala is not included in this conversation really. Mm -hmm. But uh, in Europe, at least, the technical universities are generally quite cheap, mm -hmm. except for perhaps the Anglo ones and a couple in Switzerland. They're quite cheap to attend. Um, you know, education, higher education is largely publicly subsidized here. So you can actually get a pretty good education for cheap. Um, and the schools are very much like technical schools. You don't learn any, you know, it's not like a holistic university, liberal education. It's just, you come out, you know how to do engineering and people will hire you for that. That's fine. Mm -hmm. In a sense, this is kind of lunar, right? It's a democratic education. Anyone can go in as long as you're good enough. You make the grade. That is one thing I will say that's positive. There's no like admissions bullshit here, which mm -hmm. is, um, you know, the 
You don't have to write writing about an, Yeah, exactly. Writing about your Holocaust grandmother or how you are black and trans and this makes you a good engineer, etc. That doesn't <laughs> exist in Europe. Right. And wow, that's yeah, good. basic. Yeah, exactly. And it is that in a, in a sense that is, uh, that is aristocratic because if you're only selecting for a skill on some test, you know, it's not perfect, but it's a good proxy for capability down the line. Mm-hmm. And so I think that in terms of educating engineers today, they are doing an okay job. It could be quite a bit better. We can get into this if you want to, like what prescriptions I would make uh, to how engineering is taught. We can talk about this. Whether I think that it could be done better in a parallel institution, I think so. Mm-hmm. Because um, as I said before, it's a question of limited resources, time, money, effort, and so on, and manpower, of course. Mm-hmm. And here we're not talking about how do we build systems at scale. That's not the yeah. point. We're talking about aristocratic systems. And so you right. can earn you can invest more resources for less people and that's fine because y- you can do it. You you know, I'm assuming you have uh, Peter Seal bucks. He's uh, funding your idea. <laughs> I, I think William Wheelwright, he, he's in correspondence with Seal, isn't he? Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we're, we're, cl- we're closer than we think. Um, <laughs> and so in that regard, there's a whole question of, uh, putting things into practice as soon as possible. And I think if I had, you know, like Elon Musk did this with his children, he built a school just for them because he didn't like the way they were being taught. And he Mm -hmm. puts them all in there and gave the SpaceX employees the same possibility. Mm -hmm. And there they learn how to think in first principles and it's really cool. Uh, I think the best place to learn engineering would just be a one big workshop where you can do practical things all day long. It's kind of like Montessori, I suppose. And you just, you, you're immediately applying everything that you learn because a lot of engineering is just procedural information. Uh, it's not just knowing all of the heart, the, the, the muscles and the bones of the body like med students have to do, but it's more like the process itself. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think if I were to do that, I would do it like that or just have a big garage and, you know, let kids uh, tinker around and, you know, make cool things and inflame the curiosity through that. And of course, mm-hmm. you could combine this with the real right approach of uh, pastoralism and being outside a lot and physical education and so on. That's that's mandatory, of course. But mm-hmm. from the technical aspect, I think that's it really. And then, you know, for the the informational part of it, perhaps some kind of AI system, depending on how good it is and how intrusive into your life it is, Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not exactly sure what the capability of it would be, but if you have your notes that can talk back to you, that doesn't seem so bad, you know? Yeah. What do you mean like notes that could talk back to you? Like, do you think that engineering education can be carried out relatively easily with AI insofar as it's just like, you need to learn the procedures. The AI can kind of tell you about the procedures. It doesn't like you don't need a master teacher necessarily to do this kind of thing. Is that what you have in mind or something else? Yeah. Well, this is the whole question, right? Like um, if you go to engineering schools that are less well-funded and Mm -hmm. a a lot of them in Europe still do this in more traditional countries like Spain and so on, you go to get educated and it's literally just blackboard teacher, 
learning things, doing maths, and you come out complete theory cell. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, uh, you know, you could just do this on your own with a textbook. What's the difference, really? Mm-hmm. If you're smart enough to do it, you can do it. Uh, so when I say notes that talk back to you, I mean an interactive uh, medium with it's like a textbook, but it's a chatbot, basically. I mean, for example, you can do this today already. Whenever I have to read a new scientific paper or something, I don't mm-hmm. read it immediately. I put it into Bing or Microsoft Edge. Mm-hmm. And if you open a document on that, you can open a little side tab. And it's basically like ChatGPT, but uh, Bing Copilot, whatever, it has the same backend. Mm-hmm. And it can read your PDF and answer questions based on that. So it's ChatGPT, but it knows all of your stuff perfectly. Mm-hmm. And I just ask it questions. So I'm talking to my notes and I find it much more effective than reading the whole thing because especially if you're talking about papers, you know, mm-hmm. much of it can be skipped over. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the kind of direction that we could be moving in, you know, systems where you are improving on the paradigm of pen and paper. I think we can really move away from that. But that, you know, that opens up the whole can of worms we were talking about before with, you know, technology softening you and so on. I think you really have to consider it, consider it well, but some kind of uh, AI system that you talk to for maybe a few hours a day, less, that is a, a reasonable level of, of exposure that you can still handle. Hmm. That's interesting. Because, I mean, like, uh, you know, yesterday I was driving, uh, you know, trying to think of, like, you know, a couple different things to talk to you about. Um, I remember, yeah, like, I don't know, just, like, writing in a notebook some things, uh, like, about Hawthorne, for instance, and the Phaedrus. And then when I got home... I like, you know, got on my computer and then like type those things out. And well, now maybe, maybe this is like the, you know, non-tech bro. This is like the Luddite, you know, trying to flatter themselves into thinking that they're getting more out of what they're doing than they are. But I don't know, it felt like it made it easier to talk through the Hawthorne things or that somehow like writing it out myself helped me gather thoughts on this because I feel like I've had like scattered thoughts on technology for a long time and had, you know, some really helpful you know, friends who've taught me a lot about how to think about technology that I'm grateful to, but I hadn't always consolidated what I had been taught by my friends and what I had read into, you know, some thoughts and in talking to you helped me crystallize those things. Now, maybe you could say like, well, couldn't you just use AI to just talk into, like, I could just say what I had in mind into the AI. It could write it down. It could like organize the notes and, and maybe that is possible. And maybe there wouldn't be much that's lost. I have to think about it more, but but it feels like sometimes writing it down and thinking about it in that sense, I don't know, like I'd like to think it ingrains it more. There's like some, you know, dumb study that was sort of like saying, if you're listening to a professor lecture and you type out everything that's said, you can almost, you can basically do it, like almost get a close to word for word transcript if you're typing and you're a relatively competent typist. But since you can't write as fast by hand, your mind has to use, utilize more judgment to say like, okay, what's the core of what needs to be? written down and by like using your judgment it sticks in your memory like a little bit more um and and maybe i am yeah this like idea of memory is important to me (laughs) like you know like how much can you carry with you without anything else beside you i guess 
Yeah, that's a central question, really, because for one reason or another, perhaps it's my excessive use of uh, traditional uh, plants and uh, remedies back in Guatemala. Um, my memory is quite bad. And so for me, the the problem is always remembering the stuff that I learn. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've looked very much into spaced repetition and that kind of distributed practice. But of course, that is not really helpful for procedural knowledge. It's mostly for information. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's a, there's a large foundation of just facts that you have to know about the world before you can even start to put the pieces together like, like Lego. Mm -hmm. And so that, that, that does help quite a lot, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, but to what you said before about AI, it's actually quite interesting because the same way writing changed how we use our brains, where before mm -hmm. we were just, um, memorizing everything. I mean, if you think about it, right? The, the Vedas, I think this was just artistically memorized and recited by thousands of years of Brahmins. Mm -hmm. That was their only job to memorize the entire thing. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I might be wrong about exactly which text it is, but that's, you know, they just chanted it all day and that's all they did. And it's it's enormous text. Uh, imagine if we had that today with engineers. It would be quite funny. You know, you have the entire, uh, you know, strength table of uh, <laughs> aluminum and uh, 1.2, 1.3. That would be quite funny. Engineer Brahmins, they remember all of the properties. <laughs> But um, to that point, maybe I am less affected by this because naturally I always write in lists and mm -hmm. bullet points. Or at mm -hmm. least that's how it comes out first. And I think a lot of people do. Uh, nested lists are, for me, the best data structure there is. Mm -hmm. But, you know, with the use of things like ChatGPT for language, I think that people are going to start getting more and more used to not writing in full form and just writing out the bullet points of what they want to talk about and then giving it to the AI and they turn it, the AI, you know, ChatGPT turns it into this horrible, like, corporate tone, unless you prompt it really well. I mean, you know the kind that I'm talking about, right? It's, uh, yeah. surely I will help you. And then it uses a kind of like this midwit, but also a little bit pedantic tone. Right. Uh, so, yeah. So I think this is definitely, the, the, this is the direction things are going to move, right? People are going to just use the parts of their brains that they need to use because the rest is filled in by the technologies they have on hand. Mm -hmm. um, whether this is a bad thing, I don't know. I mm -hmm. know some people who have been using ChatGPT very heavily since mm -hmm. it got released about a year ago. Mm -hmm. And they've related to me that their thinking has already become different. Mm -hmm. Where they use less of their memory because they know the AI can hold it. And they think actually on a more abstract level, on a higher level, because they know that the lower level operations, they can just outsource it. It's actually mm -hmm. quite fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is fascinating. They might turn into theory cells. That's too bad. Uh, they've all, <clears throat> you know, they'll, they'll lose their minds thinking about the fundamental questions of mathematics now that they're thinking so abstractly. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, to all of this, I think, again, the, the counterweight is the physical, it's the body. It's what Nietzsche says. It's a philosophy of the body. Make get ripped, lift big, and you probably won't become a serious cell. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, do, do you think it's like 
how much engineering knowledge is required to maintain complex systems? I guess now I'm thinking a little bit about Montana Classical College because I wanted like the, the core structure of things is like you take three courses each semester. One course is part of the core curriculum, which generally speaking are all humanities classes. So like nationalism versus globalism is what you take first semester. Homer's Iliad is what you take second semester. And then the second class that you take each semester is like an elective, like and any teacher that is at Mount Montana Classical College can teach whatever that they want to teach. That's at least even loosely tied to the school's mission of um, understanding nature, promoting noble deeds, you know, and defending nationalism, which there's a lot to say about nationalism, but we're not going to talk about that now. But just to say that the elective course, I mean, they could be anything. And I'm kind of hopeful that there will be scientific types there that would teach courses that like I would never be able to begin think about teaching. Um, you know, somebody like you uh, who knows a lot, a lot more about the hard sciences and engineering than I do um, teaching a course or something along those lines. But then the third course that you take each semester, so you're only taking three as opposed to in the United States, you tend to take four five or even six classes a semester, but like I respect my students. And so like, I think that they're probably using their free time well. And so I don't want to just hamper their free time with odious busy work or tasks that don't need to be done. And so the third class you take is an independent study that you design yourself and you can design, you can either pick like a permanent question, you know, something like, you know, what is, you know, justice or some kind of abstract along those lines, or you can pick a very practical problem, which is like, how do I maintain, you know, bridges in the United States or something like that? Like what can be done politically and technologically to maintain those things? And so you, if you're designing your independent study with an instructor, you basically do whatever you want. So it could be the case that you have to read a shitload of books, or you could just read one or two books very closely. You could read maybe even internet blog posts will be part of like the reading list that you construct for yourself. It's whatever you think will be most useful for you to understand this thing as best as you can. And then you give a kind of presentation at the end of the semester so that both the theory cells and the more practical types kind of mingle together to sort of present whatever it is that they found based on the project that they picked out for themselves. So only impressive individuals can be trusted to be part of the school in that sense, because it's sort of saying like, Hey, you have a lot of free time to search after the thing that you care about most. Um, and so use that time. Um, and if you don't, you know, you should go to a different school or something that like has like 56, you know, hoops to jump through. There should be less hoops and more time to just expand your soul while you talk to other interesting people about things. So I'm wondering like in a framework like that, does it make any sense <laughs> over the course of approximately four years for anybody to learn engineering in a serious way? Or does that really have to be done at a very different kind of institution? that's more or less dedicated to walking you through each of the levels of math up into relatively high level calculus that you were talking about earlier. Um, or, or is there any kind of way that a humanities person could find a nice engineering supplement that while you're not an engineer after this course, but now you know something kind of important that you really wouldn't get out of a regular liberal education. Wow. This is, I'm, it's a very generous uh, view of education. And when I think back to my own, it was, uh, a. <laughs> I think this is typical for engineering schools. You are, constantly busy you are constantly under pressure only having two courses a semester would be really lovely uh, i can't i can't even imagine what that feels like but yeah as i said before 
maybe you remember you don't really have time for anything else right. when you have this this intense curriculum and it's not because they want to it's because there's just so much to learn now i do think that you could probably optimize this and make it more project focused so you only learn the things that you need to know for your specific project that could probably save a lot of time mm -hmm. and if you only have very talented students they probably have the raw iq necessary to you know work through these things themselves if they have some kind of like really good uh, ai systems that helps them learn the things that they really have to learn at that moment that could probably also boost things mm -hmm. so yeah i think um maybe it's possible i think uh, if you make it project oriented and uh, cut down a, a lot on the breadth of things that you learn because if you think about the traditional uh, curriculum from a, an engineer, engineering bachelor, you you get a whole bunch of introductions to this, introduction to that. In fact, you get introductions all the way through grad school. Did you know this? You're never really doing the thing. You're only ever introduced to things. Right. Funny that. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and then at some point you are you know in your own field, and the only sources you have are other articles and then you're like oh it's not an introduction anymore <laughs> but um i do think that you could probably cut down on the on the breadth of things and just make it more focused to whatever the person is working on probably um mm -hmm. but you would need really high quality instruction you would need some kind of tutorship mm -hmm. i don't think this is completely possible unless you have extremely motivated students i have a, a couple of friends who are definitely you know, 145 IQ, they can do all of this, no problem. They can study math while listening to an audiobook. That's fine. <laughs> uh, I can't do that. I am a, a midwit among geniuses. Likewise. But yeah, so I think it's definitely possible to approach both of them. Probably you would still need some kind of uh, mini specialization because people are just different. But I think that there's a bare minimum from each side that you would probably make the other side do. So you're all in the same school, but you know people who are more interested in uh, classics, they would go all in on the Iliad mm -hmm. uh, and all the other stuff. And perhaps uh, the more technical people, they would only be forced to also read the Iliad because that's that's the foundation of it. And so mm -hmm. probably what that looks like for the the bare minimum for the other side would be something like, you know, physics, uh, maths, and uh, the basic mechanics, so statics and dynamics. And from there, you can basically go anywhere you want to because, mm -hmm. you know, you get into more specific links like uh, vibrations, control theory, and so on. That you can kind of learn when you have a project that that you need, where you need something like that. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, I think it can definitely be streamlined. I think it's possible. I think we can we can synthesize something out of this. Of course, mm -hmm. this would you know it will require quite a bit of deliberation, but uh, nevertheless, I, I I do believe in this. Yeah, well, and maybe even if there's a slightly more practically oriented student, I mean, as far as like they're taking their core class, they're taking an elective class, and then their their third class is like working on their own project. Mm -hmm. I don't know, using something like the AI notes like you're talking about might be some way to make a shortcut at the same point in time that you would need some kind of, yeah, skillful teacher that you get to interact with on a regular basis who can maybe course correct or like lay out for you, oh, you really need to know this, this, and this. And if you really want to carry out that kind of project, like some sort of 
yeah, yeah. flexible, intelligent engineer um, who yeah. wants to work at a parallel institution. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of those uh, out there. And and perhaps, you know, you can take a page out of grad school and just apply it at a lower level, which is the way PhDs work. You know, you, you're doing your doctorate and you have your supervisor and it's not like he's going to be there with you every day, all day, but right. you go to talk to him sometimes, you know, you discuss the directions things are going. I think you can probably multiply the amount of students that you can have per professor uh, quite a lot by taking this model at least for the more low touch uh, subjects. So if if people just need some a little bit of guidance here and there to see what direction they should they should go in or what they have to know, that, mm-hmm. that's probably quite uh, quite possible. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So so Sam, are there any other things that you would like to talk about or any like loose threads that you'd like to tie up or any anything that you wanted to say earlier that's just not didn't make sense to say that you were sort of holding on to like, Oh man, I wish I could have said that or anything like that. Mm, no, I think, uh, you know, unlike most Germans, I'm actually quite an impulsive person. So uh, <laughs> I, I just said whatever was on my mind and I think we've covered quite a bit. Um, yeah, perhaps what, let me see here. I wrote down a lot of nonsense before. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think we were talking about uh, Faustianism, and this is maybe a very small comment, but you know, this overreach of technology, this finding out the hard way um, of making something and then realizing the consequences, I think this is still preferable to being, you know, shy about it or coy or uh, over worried about the risks. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, this may cause some troubles and issues, but I still think it's. Um, yeah, Faustian. I mean, uh, the story of Faust is exactly that, right? Mm-hmm. He sells his soul for knowledge. And uh, right. like it or not, this is what our civilization is like, at least according to Spengler, of course. You might be wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, yeah, there's a lot to say about that. Um, maybe maybe we can talk about these things um, another time. I'm sure. I'm yeah. sure that we'll continue the conversation. Um, I've Absolutely. learned a lot from this. Like, uh, I think, yeah, I'd love to talk more. You know, in the future about you know more of the things that you know about the hard sciences because it seems like there's quite a bit, especially because you're open to not necessarily the the principal you know or main account of things. You know, trying to think. Well, not creatively is like the wrong way to talk about it because then it makes it sound science sound too poetic, but just that you have an open-minded approach to what's possible with respect to science and thinking that the mainstream account isn't necessarily firm enough to think that we really have to believe everything that it says. And if that's not the case, then we really should keep our minds open to these like other possibilities. And you seem like a a kind of unique uh, scientific thinker who's open to these other possibilities at the same time that you realize that you won't be able to carry out some of these scientific enterprises if political cultural conditions remain as they are. And so you're also the kind of man who wants to learn how to rule, how to rule others and to guide other engineers to, you know, unlock both their technological or technical or practical expertise with respect to science, but also to figure out like, how do they become in charge? Like how do they start to rule? Mm -hmm. And if they're going to do that, what kind of you know education do they need in order to rule well? Like, what do they need to know? And you're thinking about that, and 
Yeah, uh, well, it, it goes both ways, really, because it's not just, uh, you know, showing engineers and technical people how to rule and whether they should rule in the first place. But it's also realizing that the worlds that we live in, rulers will have to be in touch with the tech because that's partially where the power derives from. Right. There's no way around it. Yes, this is completely true. Yeah, so I'm glad that we could talk about this and uh, I look forward to talking again soon. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Uh, I, I am happy to have as many conversations as needed until we have finally reached some higher truths or we are tired of listening to each other. <laughs> yes, we'll become slightly less retarded uh, day by day. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Montana and Space Age Maximalist are out.